Welcome to Clinical Research Evolved, a show about the history, innovations, and future of clinical research as it evolves from ideas to actions. On this week's show, we talk with Dr. Michael Binks, a VP of Rare Disease Clinical Development at a major pharma company. Creating a new therapy and ensuring that it's safe and effective is an expensive, lengthy, and challenging process. With rare diseases, the barriers to clinical development are compounded. Today, we talk about the challenges rare disease patients face and how creative science is being used to produce treatments for critical unmet needs. Thanks for joining us for Clinical Research Evolved Season 2. I'm Dr. Noah Goodson, your co-host and tour guide to the world of clinical research. As always, I'm here with John Reitz, a digital health entrepreneur turned entrepreneur. John, today we're talking about rare diseases. What does that mean? Yeah, no, a rare disease, it's a very large category that we use to classify conditions that are not as frequent in populations. Yeah. There are more than 7,000 rare diseases and they impact about 10% of the population. So it is a really large category that impacts a lot of people's lives and it typically kind of gets pulled together as one therapeutic area. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting is they're really this massive divergence of all kinds of diseases, but they all just get lumped in as like rare disease because they just aren't that frequent for any given condition. Yeah. And our guest today has really been a leader in this space. I mean, it takes a really special approach to develop medications for a condition that's not as frequent within the population. And he's been working at this as a physician, as a basic scientist, and now as a really in a pharmaceutical context, helping develop drugs. Yeah. What I like about Michael's conversation today is that he really understands the rare disease space. He understands that it's complex, that it includes a lot of different stakeholders in it. Yeah. And he really spent some time helping us to understand how collaboration is really needed in a different way in rare diseases, but also, you know, how we should be thinking about the impact on people's livelihoods when it comes yep. to rare disease. So just, I think just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of insights to think about when we think about how we're evolving research specifically around rare diseases. Yeah. And I, I, what our listeners are so going to hear today is our guest is someone who has taken from bedside all the way to bench and now has gone back from bench all the way, taking it forward to bedside. And so he has seen this full spectrum of what it takes to drive forward new medications. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Michael Binks. Michael, thanks for being on today and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, John. Good to be here. So, Michael, you're currently the VP of rare disease at a major pharmaceutical company. Was that what you had in mind when you first pursued a career as a physician? Uh, no, it wasn't uh, at all. Uh, although when I've thought back, I was very interested in, in pharmacology at medical school and, and, and some specialties in, in immunology. But I, it didn't really cross my mind that I would end up entering a, a tech-based industry uh, such as pharma. Some of your background is in, in rheumatology, some of the work you've done. And in thinking about it, looking over your background, I was thinking that every rheumatologist I've, I've worked with, they have this very unique ability to balance this sort of art and science of clinical care together. And perhaps that's because of you know, the nature of the diseases you treat, the way you think about patient care. I'm curious, do you feel that that's true of you? And how has that impacted your work in the pharmaceutical industry? 
Well, I was certainly drawn towards rheumatology because uh, because of some of the soft skills that were required in evaluating patients. You know, if you spend a lot of time listening to people who have have pain and you're trying to discern what what, what the drivers are, uh, you know, it's a it's a very thought provoking and thought requiring exercise to weed out the key elements of their uh, story of a patient's story to get to towards likely likely diagnoses. Um, so, so it was certainly uh, an active choice, partly based on the science, the immunology that was involved that I was very uh, enthusiastic about. Yeah, Michael, I think one of my uh, friends, a rheumatologist, always used to say, I feel like I'm learning more about counseling than other aspects of my job some days, and I really enjoy it. And I think that that good listening piece is really important. And I think probably see there's a theme in this conversation. You know, when you sort of flip gears and you, you step back and you think about everything you've done, everything you can do in this industry, right? Because you have a wide aperture as an individual and as a professional. What is it that specifically motivates you to be a leader and to keep getting up every day and trying to evolve and innovate clinical research? Fundamentally, I think most people in healthcare and in the industry are motivated by a desire to do things better, to make things better for people. And I think through my time in industry, I felt that I've been able to impact a lot of patient lives. I can tell you about some of those as we go on. But, but it, it, that's a core motivation is, is just to see, see improvements. And some people like to uh, innovate in various elements of care and how care is structured, how public health is organized, all sorts of avenues like that. I've I've been keen to to see new pharmacologies, new therapeutics as my focus for areas of innovation. Mm. This is Expert Archives, the part of the show where I ask subject matter experts to summarize the history, systems, and terminology of clinical research in everyday language. Today, Dr. Michael Binks talks about rare disease. Michael, what makes something a rare disease? So the definitions are somewhat arbitrary, but essentially we cut off on prevalence of the disease. So how many patients there are with a particular disease and say above this line, it's common and below this line, it's rare. And the, the threshold that's usually used, for example, in the US is uh, that there need to be fewer than 200,000 patients with the disease. Why have rare diseases become such a major area of regulatory approval in the last 20 years? Well, I think what's very clear is that the governments, and particularly in the U.S., through their regulators, have implemented legislation to enable rare disease development. So that's partly getting away from ICH requirements, so requirements for very large studies, and providing some incentives for drug development. This has been Expert Archives, where guests summarize the history, systems, and terminology of clinical research in everyday language. Now, back to our interview with Dr. Michael Binks. You've worked with rare disease for a really long time. And in doing my research, I think your first publication on this is from 1998 on Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, which isn't like an X-linked rare disease. Was that where your interest in rare disease arose, doing that basic science? Well, I think rare diseases have been 
of interest to researchers for many decades. And indeed, much of tertiary patient care is focused on on rare diseases that consume a lot of specialist time. Mm-hmm. But certainly that was my first scientific entry into the, into the rare disease space. But with Scott Aldrich syndrome was the first research uh, there uh, that I, I got involved with. And I think subsequently also in, in systemic sclerosis, I did a, a big clinical study there. And then, you know, I, I spent uh, a significant amount of time working in industry on more common disease. But was always working on on biomarker development to uh, subdivide uh, populations, and you know the question always comes up: Well, ultimately, we're going to have potentially genotypically defined subpopulations, even of uh, of common disease, and how are we going to manage those? How are we going to deal with the development of those uh, those small populations? Uh, so that also took me towards rare disease uh, development. Now, carrying on your career, you know, after those early days, you were working as a clinician and you're analyzing Western blots and doing, I mean, I did immunohistochemistry in my graduate work, but much later on, you were doing fairly early <laughs> IHC work, but you eventually said, hey, I want to transition out of this academic and clinical setting into a more pharmaceutical industry. And I'm just curious, winding back the clock a couple of decades, what motivated you at that time to make that change? Well, I, I mean, I was interested in translational research and uh, had made efforts to develop some translational programs in academia. At the time, it wasn't particularly well supported or funded. And I realized that I had a huge amount to learn when setting up clinical trials in academia. And I, I did feel that the place to learn it was in industry. Aside from that, there was, you know, as I gradually started processing the, the possibility, uh, was, was the realization that you have potential to impact many thousands of lives through innovation of a new therapeutic, much more uh, than perhaps you, you would in routine patient care. And you know, it was a time of huge innovation in in genetics, and we were learning more and more about genotype-phenotype relationships. But translating those genetic findings into real therapeutics seemed a very long way off, and I, I wanted to work towards accelerating some of that. Yeah, it makes sense too, Michael, because I, I see such a, um, you know, if you just take this topic of rare disease, you know, one is we actually have a classification called rare disease. Two is we have people talking about rare disease um, and sort of understanding and starting, like you said, trying to loosely define what fits. And then third is we have a number of individuals said, I'm going to make it my life's work to go help some of these underserved, under-researched areas. And, and I totally get where you're going because, and I'm excited to see that, right? Because we, we see that. You see research, see people, people in industry saying, hey, this is an area that I want to focus on that needs attention. It's really nice to see that too globally, right? You look at all these different groups that are combining and connecting and partnering and working. And I think actually some of the most facilitated, forget about my IP, just partner with people is actually happening in some rare disease areas. And, and I think that's really exciting. When you, when you look at this though, and somebody says like takes rare disease and says the therapeutic area is rare disease, how do you respond to that? Because we get that a lot. And I think I probably do that a lot in my day to day. How do we answer that? How do we think about rare disease as a therapeutic area when we're questioned in that way? Well, it's a, it's a challenge because in reality, many of these diseases cross therapy area boundaries. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
In fact, the skills and expertise you need are really derived from specific therapy areas. So, for example, when building the the, the team here uh, at Pfizer, it's made sense to build a team of individual specialists. So we have a pediatric neurologist and a pediatric hematologist and a, a cardiologist and an endocrinologist all working on on our portfolio. And all of these individuals have a bent towards the rare disease in their therapy area. And, and clearly there are elements of there's expertise that's required that's different in rare diseases relative to common diseases from the point of view of how you go about prosecuting the discovery and the development phase of, of a of a program, but particularly there's so much so much more critical to hear the patient voice and to understand the patient journey, which often is much less well characterized than in common disease where people have been working for decades. And I think one of the key technical advancements that I think is really being transformative in the rare disease space is this rise of gene therapy. I'm curious for you, starting with immunohistochemistry and Western blots back in the 90s to today, when along your career trajectory did you start to think that gene therapy would be a viable approach to rare diseases? Well, I mean, for for decades, for 40 years, it's been, you know, the sparkle in, in people's eyes mm-hmm. who, are, who are dealing with uh, genetic disease. The question really relates to when is it being seem to be uh, feasible on a on a large large enough scale to develop uh, gene therapy. So, you know, I, I I remember the cystic fibrosis studies in the early 1990s that were very exciting at the time, and and you know there were a lot of problems and they weren't successful. But the, for each each one, it's a long journey. You know, I, I were, did a lot of work on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for example, and you know the genetic information was available. In terms of the the gene by 1990, and it took another 10 years to uh, engineer the gene into into a vector that, that that could be delivered to mice, and then it took you know probably another 10 years to uh, scale that up and and to have the confidence to start delivering these things systemically uh, to a point where you know we're really starting to see therapeutic uh, well, hints of therapeutic benefit from these these programs um, uh, so so it's a long journey for everyone but I think you know it was sort of 20, 2014 2015 there'd been a big explosion of activity uh, and growing confidence in the safety of AAVs that really flipped the switch for us to invest in in that technology and you know it's been a huge investment uh, from the point of view of not just uh, developing and and partnering with uh, individual assets but also ensuring that we're able to manufacture to scale uh, in the event that we're successful to be able to deliver uh, gene therapy to uh, as many patients as needed it's interesting too when you i don't know, i don't know if you see this but from my perspective as you see more advancements like you talked about in rare, but also in in gene therapy, the flip side is you also see the gaps in data collection, right? You see the gaps in, in what actually matters to that particular participant population, meaning 
the standard of cares that we use to capture the data doesn't say walking upstairs matters. But in that particular disease area, walking upstairs really matters, right? Their ability to walk upstairs with that treatment is what they're trying to solve for, not just necessarily sort of a, a other treatment options for the particular condition they have. And so I find it fascinating too that as we advance that, we're seeing a massive boom in advancement in new types of outcomes, new types of, I shouldn't say outcome, outcome assessments, right? Areas and ways to quantify whether that's ECOA, whether that's sensor related, whether it's telehealth plus those things. And, and for me personally, just in the day-to-day that, you know, that I do and, and some of the work that Noah does, you've definitely seen a correlation between a real focus on how do we do this right for participants in these areas and then how do we make sure we're actually measuring the things that matter to them in the long run. And I think that rare disease is setting a standard that's helping our industry look at what's happening there and applying it to other therapeutic areas where we traditionally maybe haven't given them the kind of construct because you have a vocal community of people you have to listen to and learn from more saying, hey, I don't actually care about this. What I really care about is that. Mm-hmm. And I find that really fascinating about the work that you do is that, you know, those, like you said, you've got motivated participant groups. You've got people that know more about the disease area than all, sometimes most of the experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and third is, is, is they're willing to not just be citizen scientists, they're willing to actually help you come up with what those endpoints that matter actually are. And I think that's really unique about this area. What are your thoughts around sort of assessments and where this world goes, though, over the next couple of years as you look to you know, sort of where rare disease and the, the treatments we have are evolving? Well, I agree. Uh, we've come a long way. And part of that is, is ensuring that the uh, endpoints that we're using in clinical uh, clinical trials are relevant for the particular patient population. In, in some areas, uh, although there may be really quite helpful endpoints for registration, you know, in drug development, we always have to look for early indicators. Just because the scale of the experiments that we're running uh, means that they're, they're, very, uh, they're very costly and you know, we want to make sure that we're selecting the right dose and that, that indeed what we uh, expect to deliver efficacy actually is, is going to deliver efficacy. And, and it's in that, uh, that area in terms of early evaluation in particular that I think we still have a long way to go in terms of innovation. Anything that we can do, and we have a lot of efforts ongoing to, to try and improve our ability to make decisions in early small scale studies through new new clinical endpoints, imaging, uh, through biomarkers uh, in in particular. But all of that requires quite a lot of essentially discovery work to Mm -hmm. characterize new endpoints. And, you know, we're we're at an amazing uh, crossroads at, at the moment of those sorts of needs and technology that's available to sort of uh, help us. So, you know, we are starting to see uh, some of the digital tech in terms of uh, activity monitoring. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have itch monitors for, for some, some conditions. We're able to monitor some cardiovascular parameters uh, very easily these days on a, an ongoing continuous basis. And, I, I don't think we've harvested very much of those benefits at this at this point, but over the next five years, I, there's going to be uh, an explosion. I'm I'm sure of validations around particular sets of 
tech-driven endpoints that inform about aspects of patients' lives that uh, otherwise would not be detected in the clinic. So it's a really exciting time to be around. I'm wondering when you, you're someone who's juggling all of these challenges and managing your teams and thinking about this, when, when you think about evolving clinical trials in rare disease, what are you experiencing as the most significant barriers to evolution right now? Well, I, I do think that um, endpoint validation, endpoint characterization, particularly, as I say, in, in the neuro area, but not only, are, uh, you, you know, there's a, a huge, huge need for, uh, for more, more work. And there are diseases that we come across and basically decide we can't work on because uh, there is not a, a plausible, credible clinical development path uh, other than, you know, starting to dose and then uh, a, a very late clinical endpoint many years later. And, and, you know, that those sorts of developments are really very difficult to, to get funded. So I would continue to think that that is probably the most significant barrier, particularly in some, uh, in some disease settings. Mm-hmm. Would you or someone you know make a good guest for Clinical Research Evolved? Do you have feedback about the show? We'd love to hear from you at clinicalresearchevolved.com slash connect. Now it's time for Future Forecast, the part of the show where I ask subject matter experts to predict the future of clinical research. Is the future impossible to predict? Absolutely, but that doesn't stop us from trying. Michael and John, I want you both to make some predictions. First prediction, what trend in clinical trial design and implementation will have the largest impact on rare disease trials in the 2020s? Um, huge question. I suspect the application of uh, technology uh, to measure patient physiology and activity of one sort or another will have a big impact this decade. Yeah, I think, Michael, you're spot on. I think there's a few trends actually in, but one of the other ones I would mention, it was mentioned earlier, is this, um, this ability to continually listen and get feedback from participants to actually help design. So the new clinical trial design models that are coming out, I think are especially keen to change in rare disease areas, where if you've got an N of 20, you've got to make sure that design supports everybody or you're not going to get in at 20 and you're not going to get the study you need. And I think that that has a super large impact on how we start to design rare disease studies over the rest of the decade. And so that's, that's what I pick is the one of the other transformational trends that's happening right now. But I think, as you said earlier, Michael, we've got a little ways to go. Yeah, it's a great point, John. I I agree. It's it's going to be very interesting to see how that evolves. All right. I'm a genie, and I grant you both one wish. You get one new technical advancement to speed rare disease therapies to market. What do you wish for and why? Well, I'm, uh, as you've uh, alluded to, particularly involved in, in AAV gene therapy at the moment. And I think the, the thing that I would really wish for uh, would be 
uh, a non-immunogenic vector because it drives the immunogenicity drives so much of the constraints around study design uh, and the pharmacology behind these things. I mean, one and done is is great, but one and tweak is probably uh, greater, I would suspect. Well, one is, how many other wishes do you have, Noah? <laughs> Two is, I'm going to give you the non-scientific answer. If I look at tech advancement, I 100% agree with Michael throughout this conversation. If I could wave the wand and say, boom, here are validated endpoints that use a combo of sensor and ECOA tools to actually get some of these endpoints that matter to participants, I know because I see it, that would change a lot of how fast we were able to get into research and how precise we could be in developing these protocols. Because it is a limitation in a large number of rare disease programs. So I feel like it's not the building, it's the poof two and three years of validation work, which takes time, takes effort, it's hard work, but you have to do it. If I could poof and two to three, two to three years is gone and all of a sudden you've got some of these validated points, we would be changing the world faster. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Tom. Thinking back on your career, thinking back on this work that you've done and what you've learned, is there one thing our listeners should take away from today's conversation to evolve clinical research forward? Well, I, you know, I think we've come a long way, as you've alluded to, uh, in the rare disease space. We still have a long way to go. A lot of uh, optimization that needs to happen around the, the clinical development process, a lot of new science to bring forward. Uh, a lot of creative work around commercial models. The biggest takeaway is we've still got a long, long way to go. We haven't cracked this problem for rare disease patients yet, but we're certainly on the road. And I think there's a, an awful lot more, more that needs to be needs to be done to serve some of those 350 million patients with rare disease. Mm, absolutely. That's excellent, Michael. Thank you for being on the show. We really great to talk to you, and I know the insights you're. Providing day will be helpful, especially those looking and thinking about how can they contribute and get involved with rare diseases. So thanks again for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, John. Uh, it was a pleasure. Our guest today was Dr. Michael Binks. Find out more about Michael on LinkedIn. Clinical Research Evolved is hosted by Noah Goodson and John Reitz and produced by Noah Goodson and Kyle Ricketts with mix and mastering by Vandal Pop Media, music by Tom Fox, art by Morris Young, research by Sarah Costanza, and media by Cassidy Williams. We'll be back with more insights into the evolution of clinical research from subject matter experts next episode. If you enjoyed this show, we'd love if you shared with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Set, 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 set,